Well, that song was about the very end of Jesus's life here on earth. And we are at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry in Luke chapter four. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Luke chapter four, where we are continuing to learn lessons about temptation from Jesus's temptation. I don't know if you have noticed this, but sometimes it seems that temptation always comes when you least expect it. You know, when you're in prayer and all of a sudden some wicked thought comes to mind. Uh, when you decide you're going to have a nice long time reading your Bible and you can't even seem to focus on the words because you are thinking about a thousand other things than reading your Bible. And yet it doesn't happen if you read a good fiction book. It doesn't happen if you read the paper. It doesn't happen if you are doing something that has no eternal significance. But if you start on a spiritual pursuit, you would think that that would be the time that Satan would kind of, you know, back off and go, oh, he's he's on fire now. I'm going to step back. But that's not what happens. And we see this in Jesus's life. Jesus is walking in obedience to the father. He is starting his ministry. He goes to the Jordan to be baptized by John, which shows us that he is not only in obedience, but he has humbled himself because he being greater, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah is humbling himself and allowing John the Baptist to baptize him. He is supernaturally encouraged because the father bestows two miracles upon him at his baptism, not only manifesting the spirit and bodily form in the form of a dove to come down upon him, but also a voice from heaven, a divine proclamation from heaven saying, you are my son with you. I am well pleased. So he is encouraged by the father. Not only that, the text says he is full of the Holy Spirit. That means he is walking in obedience to the word of God. And not only that, he is there for the purpose of having a spiritual fast. Now, you would think that because Jesus is so focused on these spiritual things, he's uh, in obedience, he is humble, he has heavenly encouragement, he is in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he is partaking in a time of spiritual devotion and prayer and meditation that, uh, you know, he would be um, just left alone. But of course, that's exactly the opposite of what happens. What we discover in our life is that when we are pursuing sin, when we are are indulging in the things of the world, when we are doing nothing of eternal consequence, Satan backs off. But as soon as we have some resolve, as soon as our heart is resolute to do the will of God, then he comes on full force to oppose us. And that is exactly what we see happening here. Charles Spurgeon said, so long as Jesus Christ had nothing to meddle with but the chips in his father's carpenter shop, the devil never tempted him. But now that he was beginning to proclaim glad tidings to the poor, the devil attacked him. So we are right at the beginning of his ministry. He's just been baptized. He's just had this divine proclamation, the visual anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then Luke stops momentarily, interrupts the narrative 
and says, and by the way, he's got royal pedigree. His genealogy traces back to David and to Abraham. He is the promised seed of Abraham. He is the son of David. And now he is resuming the narrative that he interrupted to give us the genealogy of Christ to let us know he is of royal human descent. Now, at first glance, when you read verses 1 through 13, you might just conclude that, oh, yeah, Jesus started out his ministry. He was tempted three times. He didn't sin. He got over it and then move on from there. And yet when you stop and you look at this text in some detail and meditate upon it, you discover that it is a macrocosm of information about sin and temptation. It tells us so much about what Jesus went through and what we will go through and how to deal with temptation that I have decided instead of just preaching the whole thing at once, which is what I first planned to do, is to not fly over it at, you know, 10,000 feet, but to land on site and to create an archaeological dig and sift through everything in detail so that you and I can learn more about the doctrines of sin and temptation and specifically how to avoid falling into sin. There are a lot of preachers today preaching against sin. Uh, Don't do this, do that, stop, go here, don't go there. And yet there's not a lot of people getting help about how to really avoid temptation how to cope with temptation and our our resources to deal with temptation when it comes we are uh, pretty much neglected the topic of vulnerability what makes you vulnerable to temptation and how does satan use your weaknesses against you and these are the kinds of things we're going to be learning from this portion of luke's gospel as he tells us about jesus's temptation but before we look at the temptation in detail we had to stop and get some terms defined we talked about sin what is sin you know we always talk about sin i've talked to people who don't really know what it is and we learn from james four seventeen that to know what is right to do and to not do it that is sin we learn from 1 John 3, 4, that sin is lawlessness. In 1 John 5, 17, that sin is lawlessness. Um, it's unrighteousness. It's doing what is contrary to the will of God. So anything you do in thought or deed that is contrary to God's will, that is sin. And that's what we learned about sin. And since sin is contrary to the will of God, and since the wages of sin are death, and since sin is really showing hatred towards God, not love. And since we have been saved to walk in obedience, and since sin brings reproach upon the name of Christ, and since sin ruins our Christian testimony to the world, and since sin brings all sorts of misery and grief into our life, we want to avoid sin at all cost. We don't want to sin just like we don't want to get bit by a poisonous snake or wake up in the middle of the night and have a black widow clamping down on our neck. Now, people don't wish those things because they bring grief. Well, I will tell you that sin brings more grief than that. Secondly, we learned that all men are sinners, even Christians. 
And this is something the world has problems with. I don't know if you've experienced this. If you've been a Christian a while, you have. You start talking to somebody about the Bible or what the Bible says or doesn't say or what you believe because of what the scriptures teach. And people instantly accuse you of being what? Self-righteous. Oh, you think you're so good. You think you're so self-righteous. And yet you're the first person to admit that you're a sinner and you aren't perfect. Why do they do that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because unbelievers, when you start proclaiming the truth to them, are convicted of their sin. They're convicted because of the word of God and the spirit working in the word of God convicts them concerning sin and judgment. And since you are the messenger, they hate you for the conviction they are feeling. And even though you've never said, I'm perfect, I'm holy, I'm righteous... Yet just speaking that perfect standard brings them under conviction. But every Christian will admit that they are a sinner. And first John one nine or one eight says that if we say we have no sin, we are a liar and the truth is not in us. So Christian sin, we learned that that's another important thing to remember. Also, it is important to remember that when Christians sin and they will, God gives them all the resources they need to stand up again. The righteous man falls and rises again. Why? Because God is a faithful father. And he loves his children. And just like when your children blow it and when they fall on their face, you pick them up. So God picks us up by his grace. Fourth, we learn that anytime you sin, it's always your fault. The devil never made you do it. You are always responsible for your sin. You can't blame it on your stressy circumstances. It's not your wife. It's not your mother-in-law. It's not your boss. It's you. If you took all the people who have ever made you sin and lined them up into a line, you'd be the only person in that line. You'd be standing there by yourself. You are the only person who ever makes you sin. God can't even make you sin because it would be contrary to his nature. So you have to remember that each one is always tempted and enticed and carried away by their own lust, James 1.14 says. And so you can't blame anyone else. Oh, it was the woman you gave me. Oh, it was the serpent who deceived me. No, that doesn't work. And even though psychology has made an art out of this in our world, psychology, too, oh, well, the reason you're like this is because your parents. Oh, it was your job when you were in your mother's womb. Somebody made a negative comment about you, and that's why you're a sinner. I mean, all sorts of ridiculous stuff. Fifthly, we learned that you don't ever have to sin. Even though you do sin as a Christian, you don't have to sin as a Christian because God gives you all the resources you need so you never have to sin. He always provides a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. We learned that from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Sixth and finally, we learned that temptation is not sin in and of itself, but an appeal to sin. It's nothing more than an offer for you to eat a poison apple or to smash your thumb or to gouge out your eye. Now, if I come up to you and say, here's a screwdriver, please gouge out your eye. You have an option. You can either do it or not. That's how temptation is. It's merely an appeal. It has no will to do it, to sin. It is only a solicitation to do evil. And having learned these facts, we also stopped and we ask ourselves this. 
Why in the world would God ever allow Jesus to be tempted to the degree that he did? It just seems ungodly, doesn't it? That God would take his son, his only begotten son, and at the very outset of his ministry would lead him by the spirit into the wilderness to undergo the crushing weight of severe temptation. Why would he do that? And we learned two reasons he did that. The first reason is to prove that he was, in fact, God's son. We're going to see this as we get into the text more, where twice Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, and then he tells him to do something. Why? Because Satan is trying to get Jesus to doubt who he is. And the way that Jesus, though, is going to prove that he is the son of God is not by capitulating to Satan, but is by standing up against his temptation. The second reason we discuss for Jesus being tempted is so that he can sympathize with you and your weaknesses. This is great. Hebrews two seventeen and 18 says, therefore, he that is Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for sins. Propitiation means to satisfy the wrath of God for sins of the people. And then listen to this in verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, did you see that? Why was Jesus tempted? Two reasons in this text. One, he was tempted so that he could be a merciful high priest and he was tempted so that he could come to your aid when you are tempted. That is why. We don't have to worry about Jesus not understanding what we're going through. He understands it even to a much greater degree because he was tempted to a greater degree. You don't have to say, well, Lord, you just don't know how it is. No, he does. He knows how it is much greater than you do. Hebrews four fifteen and 16 says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things. As we are yet without sin. Now, do you know what verse comes right after that? Can you think of that verse? Listen to this. Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, because Jesus was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find help. In a time of need. I love that. That when you go to God in prayer, when you approach the throne of grace or the throne where undeserved favor is dispensed, you can do it with confidence. You can do it with boldness. You can do it expecting mercy because Jesus has been there. He's been there and he's not only been there, he's been there to a much greater degree than you will ever be. And so that is the other primary reason why Jesus was tempted. It was the father's good pleasure to have Jesus go through maximum testing for your benefit and for his glory. Jesus was placed in a very vulnerable situation. 
on purpose. Now, we wouldn't want to do this. We wouldn't want to place ourselves into temptation's way. But God did it to Jesus for the very purpose of proving who he was. And the first thing we learn from the text is that Jesus was isolated. The Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness. Now, we learn that when you're let out away from Christian fellowship, when you quit coming to church, when you aren't around people who know you, when you aren't around people in general, you're vulnerable to temptation, aren't you? Because no one's around. There's no accountability. No one's watching but God. And a lot of times we can become practical atheists very quickly, put God out of our mind, and it is then that we are vulnerable. And this is what happened. The Spirit led Jesus way out, away from friends, away from familiar places, into no man's land. Secondly, Jesus was vulnerable because he was continually exposed to temptation. We learned that the longer you are exposed to temptation, the chances, your chances increase of succumbing to that temptation, right? As soon as we stand there and we allow ourselves to be tempted, we allow Satan to attack us and we don't flee and we don't run and we don't take measures to get get out of there. Then our chances slowly increase. And our fall becomes more and more certain because Satan's going to keep he's not going to stop. And so we learn seven practical ways to deal with temptation Confess your sin to God, put the full armor of God on, pray to God for deliverance and strength in the face of temptation. Be sober in spirit, stay on the alert, know that Satan and his demons are really out there. They exist, it's true, you are battling them, and they want to see you dead. And seven, resist Satan's temptation by standing firm in the faith. And now we are back to chapter 4. And from verses 1 and 2, we're going to pick out two more things this morning. Look in verse 1 of Luke chapter 4. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended... He became hungry. Now, for this morning, I want to show you two more situations that you may find yourself in, that Jesus found himself in, that will make you vulnerable to temptation so you can avoid them if possible. Sometimes you can't, but if you can, you want to avoid these situations. The first is this. You are more vulnerable to temptation when you are hungry and weak and tired. Look at the middle of verse 2. The text tells us that Jesus ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that statement, doesn't that just seem like the ultimate colossal understatement? 40 days with no eating. And then, you know, he became hungry. Well, no kidding. He's he's on the verge of starving to death. Matthew makes it clear, though, because Matthew uses a different word in his account that Jesus was having a spiritual fast, a word that is used to describe those who are fasting for spiritual purposes. Of course, a spiritual fast would be one where you choose not to eat for the purpose of focusing on God, of meditating on praying. Every time your stomach gurgles, you pray, you pray, you pray, you focus. It's a time of intense 
concentration on God. And this is what Jesus was doing. He was out there in the middle of the wilderness. Focusing on God, but he wasn't eating. He wasn't eating the phrase. He became hungry might also be translated. He was hungry. It doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus was never hungry during those 40 days. And some people have taken it to mean that that Jesus for 40 days never had a hunger pain. Well, that's a problem. If you take it as he became hungry only after and never before, then you have to explain why he wasn't hungry because, you know, he's a human. He's like you and like me in every way. He's he needs food for his physical body to survive. His brain would be telling him eat, eat, eat and more so towards uh, as he fasted. And so this has come up, allowed some and commentators to say, well, what happened was, is Jesus was miraculously preserved at this time, like Moses. Do you remember what happened when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments? It says he didn't eat or drink for 40 days. And they say, see, it's like that. That's in Exodus 34, 28 and Deuteronomy 9, 9 and 18. Or they say, no, he's like Elijah. You remember what happened to Elijah? The angel of the Lord fed him and he went for how many days on that food? 40 days. And so they say, see, it's possible. And it is possible. God could have miraculously preserved him. But I don't prefer that view because the whole purpose of the temptation was for Jesus to be tempted as a human without divine intervention. Another view is that Jesus was so focused on God and prayer and meditation that he didn't notice he hadn't eaten for 40 days. And this is, I think, hopeful thinking. And both of these last two views mentioned are views that commentators have developed because they have come to the conclusion that Jesus, when it says he became hungry, was only hungry after the 40 days and during those 40 days. But if you take it as he was hungry or he became hungry to the ultimate degree after fasting for 40 days, which is very reasonable, the grammar allows for it. And not only does the grammar allow for it, reason allows for it. Was he a human? Yes. I mean, that's the whole theme of Luke, isn't it? He is a human in every way. Well, what happens when you don't eat? Let's just say right now you after reading this, you think, you know, Jesus did it 40 days. I'm not going to eat until tomorrow morning. What would happen at lunch today? What happened at dinner? Would it be easy to go to bed with an empty stomach? What about tomorrow before breakfast? You'd probably get up extra early, wouldn't you? Yeah, why? Because, man, you'd be hungry. You're hungry. Now, that's not a sinful response. That's just how God made us, right? Our bodies are made to be sustained by food. And when we don't have enough food, our brain says, eat. And I'm sure that if you were very focused and very diligent, you could ignore your appetite for maybe three days, four days. What would you be like four days from now if you didn't eat? There would be only one thing you would hear in your head. Eat, eat. That's it. That would be the only thing you could hear. 
But what would it be like after two weeks? Three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. (laughs) You would probably be dead. You probably wouldn't even make it to the end. So it is best to interpret the text as meaning that Jesus's hunger was real, that he experienced it, that it increased. And at the end, he became really hungry which plays in perfectly with what Satan's first temptation is when we look at that in weeks to come. Turn this stone into a loaf of bread. His, his hunger at the end of that time would just, I mean, it would be Herculean. It would be monstrous. But consider this. What was it like for Jesus during that time? Just put yourself into Jesus's position for a minute and think about this. You have decided to do this spiritual fast. You know God has led you out there in the wilderness and you're being tested. You're constantly being tempted. And one of the things you need to do is focus on God. But you're not eating. How would you feel? I mean, how do you feel after you haven't eaten? Now, sometimes I get up on my days off and I think, you know, I'm going to get out there and, you know, do something. So I make a cup of tea or something. And I get out there and I start working on the, you know, eternal Hughes house remodel. And, uh, I start going along and doing my thing and I don't even notice breakfast and I don't even notice lunch unless my wife comes out and says, stop, it's lunch. Um, and I just keep going. You know what happens in the afternoon? I start spacing out. You know, I can't find my pencil, even though it's in my ear. I walk into the garage and I don't know what I'm doing in there, but I remembered a few minutes ago that there was something in there that I needed to do. So I'm standing there spacing my hands kind of get shaky i get tired i just want to take a nap and then i realize you know i should probably eat something i'm getting weak you start wimping out because i'll tell you a cup of tea doesn't have much nourishment in it does it and even though i'm you know i've listened to seven alistair Begg sermons they don't have any spiritual nutrition And so you get weak, you get hungry, and you get tired. And what if you did that today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day for six weeks? I know how you'd feel. Most of us would feel great because we'd be dead and in glory. But if you survived, you would not be feeling good. Have you ever noticed that when you are hungry and tired, that you're grumpy, that you're irritable, that you tend to bark at your kids? I do. It's harder to be self-controlled, isn't it, when you're tired? It's harder to maintain selflessness when you're tired and hungry. Because all you want to do is look out for number one, baby. I mean, it's easy to be generous after you've stuffed your gizzard and had a good night's sleep. But when you haven't eaten and you're tired and you're hungry and you're worn out, you really have to work hard, don't you? You have to really be careful to guard your tongue, to be extra careful. You're at work all day. Or you're a mom who's at home taking care of little ones all day and 
doing diapers and cleaning dishes and talking to people and answering, but why, but why, but why a thousand times you become like Shrek, man. You are the big, ugly ogre. And Satan knows you're tired and he knows you're weak. He's just saying, yeah, just yell at them. Just have them serve you. You become like a bleeding and wounded fish swimming in shark infested waters. And Satan comes up and goes, you're easy prey now. And so we need to be careful when we're tired and when we're weak and when we're hungry that we don't fall into being self-serving. And if we can help it, we want to make sure we don't get into those situations. Sometimes you can't escape it. You're tired because for things out of your control, you couldn't help it. I was just talking to Lou Stone. He was a fireman. He woke up at what o'clock in the morning to go talk to a woman who was anxious. Now, how would you like to get up in the middle of the night, get on your gear, drive in your fire truck to someplace to talk to somebody who was feeling stressed? So he didn't get much sleep and sometimes you can't help it. You know, recently they had the L.A. Marathon. And think of all those people who ran in that marathon. Now, imagine running in that thing. And if you did, I feel sorry for you. Um, But if you're one of those people, you know, who decided to do it and you run and you run and you tell you just you do your you're trying to beat your best time. You get to the end and you just collapse into a heaving mass of of gasping for air. And somebody says, all right, let's run back. Now, what are you going to tell them? No way. Why? Because I'm worn out. I'm tired. I'm spent. It's time to take care of me. Me. And Satan knows that when you're weak and you're tired, you want to be selfish. And man, we are going to see that I'm not telling you this just to, you know, make a point for no reason. But when we see Jesus being tempted here, I want you to know Satan knew exactly what he was doing. Very subtle, very sneaky and just hits him at the very pinnacle of his most intense vulnerability. Yeah, when you are arrested and when you are fed, you might be patient with your children. But when you get tired, it's harder. And so make sure that you don't put yourself into this position of weakness. You have a starving man. A starving man will steal bread in order to stay alive, won't he? Even from a friend. Proverbs 6, 30 and 31 says, men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. I mean, he still has to pay the penalty. But you don't despise him. I mean, he's trying to survive. When you read the Old Testament and David ate the showbread, which it was lawful for men not to eat. David, the man after God's own heart, went in there. And this was before he had problems with God. He went in there and said, give me the showbread. We're eating it. Why? Because we're starving. Now, he would never do that if he wasn't starving. You think of King Saul. Do you remember he made that rash vow? Do you remember he told his men, okay, nobody eat anything. Nobody touch anything until I get vengeance on the Philistines. And so what happens? 
So his army's out there trying to win the battle. Well, Jonathan, his son, doesn't know this. Jonathan, his son, doesn't know that he has told him, listen, anybody who eats them, they're going to die. And so Jonathan runs into some honey, takes a big gob, eats it. It's like, oh, all that sugar runs through his veins. It's like, oh, yes, he feels great. And then all of his buddies are saying, hey, you shouldn't have done that. I mean, they look like they've all been raised on the boneless chicken ranch. I mean, they're just limp. They're tired. They're worn out. The text says they were hard pressed, weary and very weary in 1 Samuel 14, 24, 28 and 31. And then what did that lead them to do? Well, they had this meager victory against the Philistines. And as soon as they beat them to even a small degree, they rushed upon the animals, hacked them into pieces and ate the meat with the blood still in it and sinned against the Lord. They knew that was wrong. They would have never done that if they were not so hungry. And yet their hunger caused them to be self-serving. If you have to get up early in the morning and go to work, don't stay up late watching worthless TV programs. Don't neglect sleep. Don't neglect breakfast. And so you can earn the grumpy employee of the month award. Oh, there's a Christian. Oh, yeah. Make sure that you do what you need to do so that you aren't in the habit of being cranky and grumpy. Why? Because you won't discipline yourself to eat or sleep or do whatever you need. Exercise. Some people live this incredible sedentary life and they don't get any exercise. And you know what that makes them feel? It makes them feel weak and tired. Their body atrophies and swells and then slumps. And you know what? It doesn't have to be that way. You know, the, the, the more out of shape you are, the more tired you get and the more you want to do less. And if you keep going down that track, you will find rest six feet under at Forest Lawn. Don't try to use what I'm saying to justify obsessing on your body. That's not the point. But do what you need to do in order to fight the good fight with full strength for the Lord. Don't sacrifice your sleep for worthless things if you need to be a sharp, alert, awake, faithful employee or husband or wife or whatever, student. Study yourself. Know your weaknesses. Try and get to know them as well as Satan does, because he does. Find out which makes you vulnerable to temptation and don't go there if you can help it. I'm sure that by the end of the 40 days of fasting, Jesus could barely move. He was probably just so wasted and so tired on the verge of starving to death that all he could do is just lay there. But Jesus had another vulnerability we see in the text. Look there. Fourth and finally, this one is implied. You are more vulnerable to temptation when your mind isn't focused on doing good. 
Now, we can say for sure that this does what didn't happen to Jesus. Jesus, of course, was fasting, and so his mind was trying to focus on God and prayer. But wouldn't it be a temptation? I mean, what if I just drove you out between, you know, Palmdale and Mojave, halfway out there and took a right and just 50 miles out in the desert and dumped you off with a couple of jugs of water? What would you do that first day? Well, you'd have some energy, right? You might, you know, do some rock hunting. You know, look for cactus. I don't know. Play in the dirt. But you have no TV. There's no Game Boy. There's no radio. No books. And, you know, you may be out there to focus on prayer. And you might sit down and really get focused for a while, right? But then what happened? Now, all of a sudden, your stomach would start telling you, you know, you should focus on eating. Then you have to say, no, I'm going to pray. And so you pray for all your friends and your aunts and uncles, and maybe you make it a whole day. Maybe you make it a two days, maybe three, maybe all seven days. You are focused. Your stomach's crying out and you keep saying, shut up. I'm trying to pray. And this is where Jesus found himself. And the great temptation was to fall into idleness where you just kind of say, I'm tired. I'm just despairing. I'm just going to just be sitting out there. What is there to do? I've already prayed for everything I can think of and just, you know, go into idle mode. Thomas Watson in his work, The Godly Man's Picture, says an idle person is the devil's tennis ball, which he bandies up and down with temptation until at last he goes out of play. Of course, Jesus had this purpose, but just think of how great the temptation would have been to just go into idle mode. He was out there on purpose. He was there to get tested thoroughly, severely. He was out there to pray. He was out there to focus on God. He was out there to do spiritual battle. And I'm telling you, when you don't have a purpose for your life, when you don't have a goal, when you don't know what you're supposed to be doing tomorrow and the next day, and you don't have some sort of plan of attack, you're just going to be like a bug floating on the surface of a bass pond. And it's going to be over for you soon. Thomas Watson said in his work, all things for good. Some boast of their high calling, but they are they lie idly at anchor. Religion does not seal warrants to idleness. Christians must not be slothful. Idleness is the devil's bath. A slothful person becomes a prey to every temptation, end quote. And so it's true. Does that describe you? Well, look at your life. Do you find yourself often sitting around with nothing to do? If you've developed habits like that, you, you better fill in that time. You better do something about it so that you don't become the devil's tennis ball. The idle mill where nothing is cranked out but all sorts of mischief. You need to be like the Proverbs 31 woman who does not eat the bread of idleness. Paul, when speaking to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.13, describes the fate of some of the widows. And notice how he describes these widows who are idle. Notice the kind of things that they are led into. He says this, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. They didn't have husbands to take care of. They didn't know what to do. So they just wandered around. Hey, how's it going? You know, let me interrupt you while you're cleaning your house and tell me all your dirt and I'll pass it on to the next person. 
They just were idle busybodies just causing mischief and spreading rumors. And, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? They became a prey to every temptation. The word idle describes someone who is unemployed, having nothing to do, lazy, useless, and unproductive. Paul used it of the Cretans. In Titus 1.12, when speaking to Titus, he describes the Cretans as evil beasts and lazy gluttons. That is a serious... It's interesting how Paul just says things, doesn't he? I mean, he doesn't say, yeah, the Christians, they are, the Cretans aren't nice people. He says they're evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And the Greek literally says they're lazy bellies. They're just lazy bellies. We don't want to find ourselves like the workers Jesus described in Matthew 23, standing idle in the marketplace, laying in bed, thinking of things we shouldn't, sitting around when we should be standing Not planning, not having a purpose. To say I am bored is to declare you do not have godly priorities. There is, is there nothing God wants you to do? I think about it. Nothing your wife wants you to do? Nothing you can do for a friend? Nothing you can do at church? Nothing you can do for your boss or your company? Have you prayed too much today already? Have you read your Bible too much today? Have you served others too much? You don't need to answer. I know the answer. It's no, you haven't. Every once in a while, my kids tell me something like, dad, we're bored. We don't have anything to do. You know, they don't say that very often. Because about a minute after that, they've got their shoes on and they're out there digging a trench or picking up rocks or cleaning their room. And here Jesus is, he's out there in the wilderness. And, you know, even if your intentions are good and you're saying, "Okay, I'm going to focus on prayer and meditation on the Lord. I mean, you can do that when you're fed. And then, you know, after a day or two or three or four or five your stomach would begin to scream at you. Give me something to eat and to know that you had 35 more days to go. You couldn't run around and explore because you'd be too weak. You know, hunting lizards would be out. You would just be tired, worn out and vulnerable to temptation. Satan would tempt you, wouldn't he? He'd say, you know what? I don't think God's will is best for you. What are you doing out here? He would tell you the same thing that he told the people of Israel when they left Egypt. God has brought you out here to slay you in the wilderness. Isn't that what he told them? And they believed him over and over again. And he'd say, hey, listen, God's not being good to you right now. I mean, you haven't eaten in a long time. I mean, you can't wait for God to provide for you. I mean, come on. You need to quit praying and take matters into your own hands and find some stink bugs to eat. Do something. Eat anything. I mean, you're, you're on the verge of death. If God loved you, he wouldn't have you suffer like this. If God loved you, he wouldn't have you go through this trial. <sighs> Satan knows just what to say. 
And we're going to see him say it in the weeks to come. Charles Spurgeon, in a sermon entitled Satan Considering the Saints, said this, quote, Satan knows, however, just where to smite us and our position, our capabilities, our education, our standing in society, our calling may all be doors through which he may attack us. You who have no calling at all are in particular peril. I wonder the devil doesn't not swallow you outright. The most likely man to go to hell is a man who has nothing to do on earth. I say that seriously. I believe that there cannot happen a much worse evil to a person than to be in a place where he has no work. And if I should ever be in such a state, I would get unemployment at once for fear I should be carried off body and soul by the evil one. Idle people tempt the devil to tempt them. Let us have something to do. Let us keep our minds occupied. For if not, we make room for the devil. Industry will not make us gracious, but the want of industry may make us vicious. Have always something on the anvil or something in the fire. End quote. Get busy doing God's work. Don't let your mind lie idle and your life lie idle. There's plenty to do. Plenty to do. Don't cater to your flesh so much. Get out there and dig a trench. Fix the faucet. Do something. But don't just be idle. My grandfather used to say, listen, you find a boy who's fishing, you find a boy out of trouble. I was out of trouble a lot when I was young. My grandpa always uh, also said, when you run out of things to do, it's time to die. And some of you who are, quote, retired know what I'm talking about. You wish you could go back to work again so you could rest. And this is a good thing. This is a good thing. Is there ever a time in your life when you don't need to love God with all your heart, soul and mind? Do you ever get to not do that? Is that okay with God? Is there ever a time when you can ignore Isaiah 26, 3, which tells you to make your mind steadfast on the Lord? Can you ignore Colossians 3, 2, which tells you to set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth? Do you ever just get to not do that for a while? Oh, Lord, can I just not set my mind on the things above and just be earthly for a bit? Is that okay? No. Can you disregard 1 Peter 1.13, which says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you ever just get to ignore that? No. When was King David tempted? Do you remember the story? It starts out with these words. And it was the time of year... When kings go out to battle and where was David sleeping during the day sluggarding in his palace. And then finally, when it was nighttime and it was time to go to bed, he woke up, saw the woman lusted after committed adultery. His adultery led to murder. His murder led to the death of a very godly man. 
Uriah and later on the death of his sons and his entire life from that point on was plagued with misery and tragedy until his dying day. Isaac Watts wrote in books or work or healthful play, I would be busy too, for Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do. And that's true. So when we look at this, we ask ourselves, so Jack, what's the purpose of all this? Jesus didn't sin, and yet all this happened to him, right? But you aren't Jesus. You aren't God. You aren't impeccable. Remember the definition of impeccable? Picture a stainless steel pole and a woodpecker on the pole. He cannot drill into the pole. It's impeccable. Jesus could not sin, but he could be tempted to sin. And so God cranked up the fires of temptation to the ultimate degree so he could relate to you. And so he could relate to me. Sure, he was isolated. Sure, he was continually tempted. Sure, he was hungry and tired and weak. And sure, he was out a lot of specific tasks and things to do out there, except things that he had to just do with his mind. And so in all these things, he was extremely vulnerable to temptation. But you know what? He never sinned. And this is what's incredible about the text before us. It teaches us how not to sin, even if you find yourself in those positions. God's grace is always sufficient, even if you're isolated, even if you're continually tempted, even if you're tired, hungry and weak. Even if you find yourself in a situation where you haven't planned being there and you don't have any specific plans for doing anything, you can still do something constructive within the will of God. So I want to encourage you with those words. God's grace is sufficient. And so as you leave here today and you're going out into the world, ask yourself this. What are your areas of weakness? Do you know what they are? I think you do. I think most of us do, if we're honest to ourselves. Now, what are you doing to avoid areas of weakness in your life? What are you doing to make sure you don't fall into sin? What steps are you taking to avoid placing yourself on the freeway at night? And right in the way the, of temptation, don't go there. The evil, remember the prudent sees evil and hides himself from it, but the naive go on and what? And they pay the penalty. So keep those things in mind. Don't throw yourself in the place of temptation. Trust in God's resources and he will deliver you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you've given us and we thank you for what we've learned some more from Jesus we're beginning to see how you are setting him up for the greatest temptation ever brought against a man on the face of the planet. And yet it is all for your glory and for our good. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the lessons we can learn. Help us not to purposely throw ourselves in the way of temptation. To live in such a way that we are tempting the tempter to tempt us. Father, may we not be idle. 
May we not purposely cause ourselves to be weak and tired and hungry and vulnerable to Satan's attack and our own selfish nature. And Father, we just ask that in the weeks to come, we would continue to learn more about this and that we might walk before you in holiness, trusting in your grace and your resources to give you all the glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.